The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. Um, I want you to turn with me to Luke uh, chapter 7, if you would, please. We're in Luke chapter 7. We're going to be, we'll be reading from verse 24 to the finish of the chapter. But first, I, I want to tell you what we're, I'm trying to do in this passage, what I believe this passage, the message of this passage to us. I want you to become convinced of two vital realities today. I want you to be convinced, first of all, that true greatness is found only in the kingdom of God. Now, you're just saying that Jesus is our king. What that means is we are told in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, that we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness or the authority of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. The church and kingdom are not synonyms, but they do overlap in the sense that everybody who has come to faith in Christ is not only a part of the church of Jesus Christ, but he's also living in the kingdom of God's dear son. And he is our king. And in this kingdom is the only place that you can find what true love really is. And secondly, I want you to become convinced that, um, I'm sorry, true greatness, first of all. And then the second part of the passage talks about how that true love can be experienced only in the kingdom. So we're going to be looking at these two things. According to LeBron James, LeBron James is the greatest basketball player in the world which is interesting, the last time he was interviewed after the, game, after the series with uh, Golden State, he said that the Golden State Warriors are the greatest team in the world. So I'm not sure how those two things fit together. But true greatness is an ability. I don't know anybody can play basketball like LeBron James in my personal friends. But true greatness in the kingdom of God isn't what you can do it is who you are and the role that God has given you, which identifies who you are. And we'll see that in this first section, what true greatness really is. And by the way, that means that you have a, a role as a believer and as a member of the kingdom of God that cannot be equal by anything else, and that is you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And that's the assignment you've been given. That's the role that you've been given, this great blessing of being an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And then in the second section, in verses 36 through 50, where Jesus has something happened in that's quite strange at first to us, uh, where you see a manifestation of what real love is. Most of you probably heard the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. Over 70 times the word love is used in that song. And it just goes on and on and on and on, right? Love is all you need. Well, the love that, the, that is in the kingdom of God is a far greater love. In fact, in John 15, it tells us that what happens is when Christ comes into your life, you begin to experience the Father's love for you that's just like his love for his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see these two things. So I want, if you would, if you'll look at verse 24, let me read, first of all, this first section from verse 24 down through verse 35. If you'll follow along, please. Verse 24, remember what's happened. Uh, some messengers from John the Baptist. Now, John is in prison now. 
And in, in just a short period of time, he's going to be beheaded. So things haven't turned out for him like he thought, because he thought when the, the Messiah came, he would not only bring deliverance and healing and make things right, but he would bring judgment upon the enemies of God. And so John was confused, and he sent a couple of his apostles, a couple of his disciples, rather, to talk to Jesus and ask him, are you the expected one? Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah, or should we expect somebody else? And so Jesus, right before that, heals people and does supernatural things, and he says, go and tell John what's happening. And so they did. Well, now they come back, because John sends two of them back to uh, to to uh, Jesus and uh, this now listen to what happens when the messengers of John had left he began to speak to the crowds about John John the baptizer who was the one who came and announced the coming of Messiah and this is what Jesus is what did you go out into the wilderness to see in other words all these people had gone out into the wilderness to see and hear John the Baptist preach in fact huge huge crowds begin to gather to hear John proclaim this message of repentance, to prepare the way of the Lord. These were God's people, the nation of Israel. And so John was telling them, prepare your hearts, the Messiah is coming. And so he asked them, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. And of course, John was dressed like Elijah the prophet, like a wild man. And he goes on, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you and, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. God speaking to his son. I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, Jesus says, among those born of a woman, that is among humanity, there is no one greater than John. He's the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. That's his point. He says, yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I I thought about maybe asking, who of you thinks that you are the least in the kingdom of God? I think a lot of us would raise our hands. But he says that the least in the kingdom of God, and you wonder, okay, why is all of a sudden the kingdom of God here? Because the king is here. The king has come, and so in a very real sense, there was a presence of the kingdom of God being manifested by Jesus, the eternal king. He goes on and he says, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they, now notice that, the tax collectors and the people, they acknowledge God. God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John, baptized a host of people to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. But none of the Pharisees or lawyers would be baptized. And notice what he says in the next verse. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for them, not having been baptized by John. And then Jesus says, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. And they say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. In other words, you refuse to be influenced by us. Some of you thought Bob Dylan wrote that line because it's in one of his songs. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. In other words, you wouldn't be manipulated by us. 
For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he's a de- he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her children. In other words, the product of the, of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ proves who he really is and what he's really like. Now, this is fascinating because, you see, these two men, first, John the Baptist comes on the scene, and the Pharisees and the lawyers reject him. They say he's not from God. Jesus comes on the scene, very different than John the Baptist, and they reject him just as much because neither one of them would do what pleased these critics because they had been sent on a mission from God. And so they were faithful. So what we're going to look at first is why is true greatness found only in the kingdom? If you notice back in verse 28, it says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, that is John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. I understand we're in the New Testament, but he was the last of the prophets of the Old Covenant. And so Jesus says, the very least person within the kingdom of God who believes on Christ and has come to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ and therefore is in the kingdom of God, this phase of God's kingdom, the kingdom of his dear son, People who are in the kingdom, the least of us, which I would say that's me, and you would say probably it's you, but the least of us is greater than John the Baptist. And then we have to ask the question, well, why is John the greatest among those born of women? Why does Jesus say this? Here's the reason. His mission. His mission is to be a forerunner before him, that is, before the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, if you know anything about the story of Elijah, you go back to First Kings and read the story, the life of Elijah, you can see that he was a man used by God, and he was not popular. There were people who wanted to kill him because he told the people exactly what God had sent him to tell them. And he did supernatural things. And so he says that, that John comes in the power of Elijah. In Luke 3, 4, it says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. This is what John was, was saying as he preached. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. In other words, worship Jesus as the eternal Son of God. You remember when John baptized Jesus, God spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so they were to respond to him as he really was, the the Son of God who had come to save his people. And then in Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, Then Jerusalem was going out to him, that is, going out to John. And all Judea... And all the district around Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. They wanted to get their hearts right for the coming of Messiah. And this was amazing because this was the great majority of the people of Israel who went out to hear John. It's apparent that God's Spirit is upon him. God's hand is upon him. 
And he had to feel his greatness, don't you think? If thousands upon thousands of people are coming out to hear him preach out in the wilderness, this man dressed in rough clothing and living in the wilderness, and they go out to hear him. This isn't some big auditorium with cushy seats like you have here. This was out in the wilderness. And they go out. This great multitude goes out to hear him. But remember what John kept saying about his, his own greatness. In, in Acts 13, he says, well, Luke writes, while John was completing his course, he kept on saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. That is, I am not the Messiah. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. I am not even worthy to stoop down and tie the sandals of the Messiah. And then in John chapter 3, verse 30, he says, he must, decrease, he must increase, but I must decrease. In other words, John understood that Jesus was far greater than he was, and yet John was the greatest of all the prophets because of this mission that God had sent him on. This was his mission. In fact, if you look at 29 and 30 again, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. They responded to the message of John. Repent and prepare your hearts for the coming of Messiah. But the Pharisees, of course, did not listen to him. But how can the least in the kingdom be greater than John? Now, I could understand if he said, the greatest in the kingdom will be greater than John. John's the greatest in the Old Covenant, but the greatest in the New Covenant, which is Jesus, is greater than John. But that's not what he said. He said, the least in the kingdom of God. The least of all the believers that are part of the church, the least of all believers who are in the kingdom of God are greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the greatest of all the prophets. I want you to think about that a second. Whatever you think of yourself, maybe there's some really proud people here who think they're the greatest in the kingdom of God. But the point is, is if you, if you think you're the poorest, if you're the weakest, if you're the smallest in the kingdom of God, you're greater than John the Baptist. Why? Why would that be true? Well, it's because of our mission. We are ambassadors for Christ. That's exactly the wording that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are the ambassadors of Christ. And Paul says, therefore, we appeal to people, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. There's a story that most of us have heard before. I've heard several preachers use this story. It's an amazing story. It's a story about a man named John Harper. John Harper Harper was born in Glasgow, Scotland, in about 1872, I think, something like that. And when he was 14, he had become a believer probably at 12, at 14, he began to preach on the streets, 14 years old. In fact, he began to walk down the streets of Glasgow, and he would preach as he walked, and then he would stand on the street corner and call people to faith in Christ. Amazing. By the time he was 17, he had a reputation because he was, had been so fruitful in the work of the gospel. And so a pastor in London called him 
and took him under his wing and set him free to do the work of the gospel full-time because he had been working on a full-time job and preaching on his way home and his way to work. Preaching the gospel. You know the gospel, right? You have to know the gospel in order to be, to be an effective ambassador of Christ. And the gospel is the good news that God created us for himself, and yet we sinned and alienated ourselves from God. And so God, in his grace, sent his Son into the world to reconcile us by coming into the world and fulfilling the righteousness that we refuse to fulfill and by dying the death that we deserve to die on the cross. And everyone who would ever believe in him, put their trust in him, would be saved through his dying. And this is what John Harper preached. Well, he... uh, he was in London in this ministry, very fruitful, planted a church. The church grew like crazy. And then um, Moody Church in Chicago heard about him and wanted him to come to America and preach a series of messages on the gospel in Chicago. And so he did. It lasted for a month, prolonged meetings. Of course, they didn't have TVs then, and they didn't have smartphones. So when you had a conversation with a person, they actually would look you in the eye. Remember what that was like? That's been a long time, huh? My wife and I were in a restaurant the other day, and I pointed out to her in the whole section we were in, there was not one person who was not looking at their phone. Not one. Amazing, huh? And I have to say, I plead guilty. I don't have my phone with me, so I'm not going to look at it to, to illustrate. About a month ago, I uh, was looking on Facebook, and I saw an old friend of mine and he was looking at his iPhone. And so I put a little comment under it, and I said, uh, <clears throat> little children, keep yourself from idols, especially iPhones. And I got a note from Facebook. And they said, you need to understand that whatever you post is seen by everybody. I assume they thought that was hate speech or something. I don't know. But it isn't an amazing that... Our role as ambassadors for Christ means that we must talk to people in order to fulfill our role. Now, some of you think that that role is given to pastors. I have, a, I have an uncle who was a pastor for many years, and he, went to, he was a missionary in um, South Korea for many years. And so I talked to him once in a while. I call him and talk to him and and the last time I talked to him, I was asking him about how things were going. And I asked him, do you ever preach anymore? And he says, well, I don't have any opportunity to preach. But he said, God's given me another ministry. I said, really? He said, yeah, I go to the mall every day. And without exception, every day God gives me opportunity to share Christ with somebody. You see, he doesn't need a minister's license to do that. He's an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Now, if, you, if it would help you to function as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, I'll make a little license up for you. Put your name on there and your picture and everything and say you're an ambassador of Christ. Because you are. You are. And it's really clear in the Scriptures. In fact, if you go to the book of Acts, it's really fascinating. In the book of Acts, it says when persecution broke out in Jerusalem, when there was this group of people that believed on Christ... When persecution broke out, the Jews began to persecute them. It said that everyone was scattered except the apostles. 
The apostles remained in Jerusalem then, and all these ordinary people went out and started to spread out to escape this persecution. They began to tell people about Christ. And it says, at first, they only talked to Jews. But then some of these ordinary men went up to Antioch, and they began to tell the Greeks, that is the Gentiles, the message of salvation in Christ. And many came to faith in Jesus. Now, these were not pastors. They were not apostles. They, they were not even deacons. They were ordinary Christians who were ambassadors of Jesus Christ. That's true greatness. And so they took the gospel, and God saved a host of people. And from there it spread. It went west, and it came all the way to Knights in California. And it spread by the testimony of ordinary people who are ambassadors of Jesus Christ because they have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I was telling you the story about John Harper. What happened was uh, he went to Moody, had this great meeting, and so then they asked him to come back again. He's living in Glasgow. So what happens is in 1812, no, 1912, when, when did the Titanic sink? 1912? I don't know my history very well. But anyway, what happened was he got a second-class ticket and was sailing from England to the United States to go to Chicago and preach at Moody Church. It was him, his daughter. He was now a widower because his wife had died. He was still a young man. He was about 24 years old, 25 years old. He had his little girl and one of her cousins with him, and they sailed towards America. And, of course, you know what happened with the Titanic. It hit a glacier. And so he woke his daughter up in the middle of the night and said, we've hit a glacier. There's a ship coming to rescue us, which there wasn't. He was trying to calm her down. But he said, but I'm going to, just to be, just as a precaution, I'm going to put you in a lifeboat, you and your cousin in a lifeboat, and I'll wait for the ship that's coming to rescue us. So he put her in the lifeboat. He, they gave him a life jacket. He went into the water, but then... He met, he, in the water, he ran into this guy who had no life jacket, so he took the life jacket off and gave it to him. And he was just holding on to some debris hanging, floating around. The only reason we know what happens next is because of the testimony of a man who met him in the water. And he wrote a track called The Last Convert of John Harper because he was out there floating in the water and John Harper was floating out there and he kept running into people and he would say, are you saved yet? Now they're in the freezing water and he says, are you saved yet? And they would say, no. And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You know where that's at, right? That's the words of Paul to the Philippian jailer. And he said, I was out there and Harper came up beside me and he said to me, are you saved yet? And he said, no. And he said to me, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And then he floated away. He got washed away. And pretty soon he came, he started coming towards him again, still hanging on to this debris. And he said to him the second time, are you saved yet? Or are you saved now? And this guy said, no. And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Now, that's not the whole gospel. But when you're talking to people who are drowning in an ocean, you're probably better off to say something very brief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. 
And he said, and then he lost, uh, Harper lost uh, his grip on the wood and went down and drowned. And this man gives his testimony up in Ontario, Canada, in fact, at a small meeting, and he told about this, and he said, right there, when I was floating on the ocean, after he said this to me, and he went down, he perished. I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and I was saved. Now, that's a dramatic testimony, isn't it? Well, let me tell you something. The reason that God used John Harper is because, like you, he's an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And that's what you are. That's true greatness in the eyes of Jesus Christ. He has done something for you that you can't even measure. He has made you an ambassador of Jesus Christ by saving you. When you came to rest your faith in Jesus Christ, you heard the gospel, you heard the gospel message of how God sent his son into the world to save you from your alienation and your sin and brought you back into a right relationship with him. And at the same time, he made you an ambassador of Christ. So it's your responsibility, it's your role, it's your privilege to say to people, be reconciled to God. Now, of course, you have to share the gospel with them. And because you're, not, you're typically not going to witness to people as you're floating on the ocean, it's okay to tell them about God sending them in the world to die for our sins. And he was buried and raised again from the dead. And everyone who comes to put their faith in him will have their sins forgiven and they become a part of the family of God. That's what you've been called to. You know, you know how many Christians do that? By the latest studies, there's been six of them, major studies in, in the West, because they can't figure out why is the church not growing with the population? Guess what the results of that study is? 2% of Christians regularly talk to people about the gospel, regularly share their faith. I ran into a passage uh, recently that just blew me away. It's... Uh, Listen to this. This is Philemon, verse 6. Philemon's the letter that Paul wrote to the owner of this slave, Onesimus, that had gotten saved in Rome when Paul was in prison in Rome. And he shows up. He's running from his master. He shows up, and Paul takes him in and leads him to Christ and becomes a servant to Paul. And now Paul sends him back to Philemon, his master, and he writes him this letter. And get this. This is what he says to him. He says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. I used to think until I read this verse and thought about it that you really needed to get a very sound and strong like Bible college education of the gospel and what Christ had done for you before you'd be an effective witness. But here Paul tells Philemon, you want to come to understand the blessings that God has given you in Christ? Share your faith. And I, when I thought about that, that is exactly true. When you start talking to people about the gospel, what happens is you get clearer on the gospel. You have to. And you become, you become better informed about the gospel as you share the gospel with people who have not yet come to faith in Christ. And so Paul tells him, I'm, I'm praying for you that you may be active in sharing your faith. What we want in our church, what we've always wanted for the last 20 years, is we want to have an evangelism culture. 
And evangelism culture is a culture in which we all understand that we all are witnesses for Christ. We're all ambassadors of Christ. And we expect that if I need help in sharing Christ with somebody, I could ask any of you. Or if I wanted somebody to talk to them about Christ, I could send them to any of you and you would share the gospel with them. That's an evangelism culture. Now we understand that evangelism is just the first step in the process of making disciples. It's the beginning of the journey, not the end of it. It isn't like get people saved and then forget them, send them on their way. No, it's to see people come to faith in Christ so they can grow as disciples of Christ and be a witness and be an effective ambassador for Christ. So think of that. 98% of us, according to these statistics, failed to share Christ with people on some kind of regular basis. You know, I, could, I made a suggestion a couple of weeks ago. I'll give it to you again. This is a way to start. Write down the names of five to ten people that you know that don't know Christ and start praying for them. Just start praying for them. That they, that they would hear the gospel and preferably from you. I told you the story about one of my cousins who came to faith after I'd tried to witness to him for years and years and years. He comes to faith in Christ when some other guy talks to him about the gospel and it made sense to him. And I had told him a hundred times. But praise God. So you can start this way. Simply write down the names of five to ten people that you know that don't know Christ and start praying for them. Start asking God to bring the gospel to them, that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and have their sins forgiven and become a part of the family of God. How does one uh, enter the kingdom of God and receive this glorious assignment? How do you get into the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus happened to tell Nicodemus, and it's recorded in, in John chapter 3, very familiar passage. In fact, I might as well have you turn there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so you can turn over to John chapter 3, and you can see this. Jesus gives these, this clear explanation of how you get into the kingdom of God. He's the one who knows best. Listen to this. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. Quite literally, it says he was the teacher of the Jews. In other words, he had a high position among the Jews. He was a religious leader. But he comes to Jesus in the cover of night. It says, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, that is teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. He's putting a stamp of approval on Jesus, and Jesus should be impressed with that, shouldn't he? Because this guy's the teacher of Israel. And this is what Jesus says to him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, who had no spiritual insight, says, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered and said, Truly, I truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, he's telling him something that he should have known because we have a very clear picture of this in the Old Testament. 
in several places, the book of Ezekiel, for example. But Nicodemus didn't get it. I want you to get it. The way you get into the kingdom of God is by being born again. And the way you get born again is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's one of the pieces of being born again, is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you get in the kingdom of God. And when you get into the kingdom of God, you now are an ambassador of Christ. Don't let that scare you. That's just a great privilege. It's just a great privilege. Just to talk to people about Jesus. Not in a fever like, you've got to believe me or I'm, I'm worthless. No, not like that. It's like, what do you really love? What are you always talking to people about? I know some of you and the things that you're really interested in, and I know that if a person talks to you in five minutes, they're going to hear all about that thing, whatever it is. Well, Jesus is the one about whom we are to be enthralled and whom we talk about. Now, the second question is why true love is found only in the kingdom. I'm going to read to you from verse, uh, from verse 30. Six down to the end of the chapter, listen to this. This is a second story in this passage. Now one of the Pharisees, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now I, I assume that none of us recline at table. I've never had gone over somebody's house and they said, "Why don't we come and recline at table?" You know, most of us have, have chairs. I remember Estes Johnson said, when you look at the Last Supper, the, the picture, it's a painting, and we have reproductions of it, of the Last Supper, Supper. It looks, he said, it looked like Jesus said to the apostles, hey, fellas, come over here for a photograph. Because they're all sitting on one side of the table, and they're sitting in chairs. That's not how they had dinner. They reclined at table, and the table was very low. And you laid down, and you laid on your elbow, probably on your left side if you're right-handed, so that you could take food, and your feet were pointed away from the table. Now, this Pharisee probably lived in a house where there was a courtyard in the very front. It would be how you access the house. And so what hap what's happening, they're out in this courtyard having dinner together, and they're reclining at table. And it says, while they're reclining at table, having dinner together, this Pharisee's hosting Jesus. Why is he doing this? Because Jesus is so popular that so many people are listening to him and taking him seriously. This Pharisee doesn't believe in him, but he's trying to figure out, what is it with this guy? And so listen to what happens. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. That means she was a known sinner. She was living in some kind of rebellious activity. Many Bible uh, commentators believe she was a prostitute. But for whatever it was, she was known to be not living under the law of God. She lived in disobedience to God's clear commands. That's what was her reputation. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, very expensive. And standing behind him, that is, his feet are out away from the table, and as she's standing there at his feet, she's weeping. She's weeping. Why is she weeping? Well, we find out later it's because her sins have been forgiven, because she had heard the message of Jesus. She had heard the gospel, and she had believed 
And she was forgiven. And she knew she was forgiven. And she was a great sinner. And so she's weeping, and she's, it says she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume, the alabaster. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him and that she's a sinner. And you see, the Pharisees believed that they were righteous before God because they kept themselves separated from what they call sinners. And Jesus was constantly dealing with sinners, touching sinners. In fact, remember when he healed the leper and he put his hand on the leper? You're not supposed to put your hands on a leper. You touch a leper and you'll get leprosy. And then Jesus touched him. He did this on several occasions and healed him. And it says, And Jesus answered him, Simon, that's the name of the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. And he gives him a parable. He says, A money lender had two debtors. One who owed him 500 denarii. Now, a denarii uh, is like a day's wages. So let's say conservatively, uh, this 500 denarii would be $50,000. He said one owed him 500 denarii, $50,000, the other 50, which would be $5,000. And he says when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them would love him more? You've got to understand, Simon did not believe he was a sinner at all. And he certainly believed this woman was far, far away from the God that he was close to. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who forgave, who he forgave more. And he said to him, you judge correctly. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. Now, there was just a common courtesy in that day. In that setting, if a person came to your house to have your servant wash his feet, or at least if you weren't rich, you didn't have servants, you had to give him water. And really the, the hospitable thing to do would be to wash his feet. It was the role of the lowliest servant. Remember, this is what Jesus did at the Last Supper to his disciples. Remember that? That he washed their feet. And he says, you didn't even give me water to wash my feet. And she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, that it was a common greeting. You brought somebody to your house, they came in, you greeted them with a kiss. Kind of like us shaking hands or giving somebody a hug. He says, but since the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. In other words, this is evidence that she knows she's a sinner and that she's been forgiven her sins. He's a sinner and doesn't know it. And so he has no joy because he certainly hasn't asked for forgiveness and he doesn't think he needs to ask for forgiveness. 
And so he has no joy and no love for Jesus who came to save. And so he says, she's been forgiven much. In verse 48, he says, then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? Because they knew that only God could forgive sins. Well, guess who this was? This was the eternal God, the Son, who forgave her, announced her, your sins have been forgiven you. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The new birth includes forgiveness. It not only includes forgiveness, it includes both the objective side of it and the subjective side. That is, not only are you truly forgiven, but you feel forgiven when you put your faith in Christ. Sometimes it's so overwhelming that you can't hardly contain yourself. I've been around people who come to faith in Christ, and you think they're never going to stop weeping. They're so overwhelmed with joy at what God has done. And if you notice there in verse 47, he says, her sins, which are many. Yeah, she is a sinner, a great sinner. But her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. That's the proof that she's been forgiven. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Steve Brown, who's a radio preacher that maybe you've heard, says, you cannot love until you've been loved, and you can only love to the degree that you've been loved. This is why we understand that when we have children, we're to love those children, and that's what they desperately need, to be loved and accepted and bonded. And when that doesn't happen, you're creating people who don't even know how to love. And this is right out of 1 John 4, verse 19. John says, we love because he first loved us. The new birth includes forgiveness. It not only happens in real-time history, but it happens in the deepest part of your heart. You become aware that you've been forgiven. The, here's the order of our experience in salvation. What I mean is, what, do, what happens, what do we feel if we were to describe what it was like to come to faith in Christ? If I were to describe to you the way I felt when I first became a Christian, here's what it is. First of all, conviction. Now, conviction is what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do when he came into the world. He would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, when the gospel is presented, the Spirit produces conviction in the heart that I actually need this salvation that Christ has provided for me. I need forgiveness. And then... There is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are so close together, you can't separate them. Uh, uh, Spur Charles Spurgeon said, when somebody asks him, what comes first, repentance or faith? He says, that's like asking when John Smith walks into the building, who came in first, John or Smith? They're inseparable. Repentance means we repent towards God and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We change our mind about our attitude towards God. We all of a sudden come to realize through the work of the Spirit that we desperately need to be reconciled to God. We come under conviction, and we turn to Christ to find that reconciliation. 
We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we experience forgiveness. Sometimes we don't talk about this. Sometimes we can talk about love in such a generic way. God loves everybody. It's God's job to love, and it's our job to sin, some people think. No, God's love is very specific. It comes to a person, and first of all, in the person of the Holy Spirit, he brings conviction to the heart. I need God's forgiveness. I have lived in sin against God. Now, what sin is, is not just some fancy biblical word. Sin means to be in, uh, in rebellion against God's, refusing to come under the authority of God, to come under his commands. And I've mentioned this many times because this is my favorite, favorite commandment. My wife's not here today. I can say this. My favorite commandment in the New Testament, there's 150. You know that? There's 150 commandments in the New Testament. My favorite is, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wives in such a way, husbands, that you would lay down your life. If somebody has to die in your family for the rest of the family to survive, you're the guy. You're the point man. That's a commandment from Christ. To disobey that commandment is sin. That's what happened to me. I I came to realize back in the 70s that if I wasn't loving my wife, I was sinning against God. Because sin is rebellion against God. It's refusing to obey his command. So what happens is conviction comes. There's repentance, a change of mind, and faith in Jesus Christ. And then there is this forgiveness that we experienced. Do you remember what it was like when you were forgiven? Do you remember when the weight was lifted off your back? Isn't it wonderful to be forgiven by God? And then the next thing is love. And that's what happened to this woman. She had been forgiven and she loved Christ. She loved him much. She did something so outrageous, walking into this Pharisee's courtyard and washing the feet of Jesus. Why was she so overwhelmed with this kind of love? because she knew she had been forgiven much. And then, finally, joy. We know this from 1 Peter 1, when he says, if you believe in Christ and love Christ, you will have joy inexpressible and full of glory. And because you have joy, you worship, fellowship, and evangelize. That is, evangelism, all that is, is sharing the truth about Christ with people who don't know him. Worship is calling back to him who he is because he fills your heart with joy because of this forgiveness. And evangelism is wanting to share with others because what happens is when you get saved, when you come to faith in Christ, you start loving people in a way you never loved them before. And you, can, you love people so much you want them to come to know Christ the same way you do. That's the motivation of evangelism. It's love for God and love for people. You want them to come to know the joy that you have come to have. There's an amazing passage in, in uh, Isaiah 38. I got a second. Turn back to Isaiah 38 for just a second. Isaiah 38. This is the, pa- this is the passage where he talks about Hezekiah. We used to do this when I was kids. If you wanted to find out if somebody knew the Bible, you'd say, Hey, have you ever read uh, Hezekiah 1? Well, there is no Hezekiah one. There's no book in the Bible called Hezekiah. But Hezekiah is a real person in the Bible. And in chapter 38, he's told by God through Isaiah that he's going to die. 
And he begins to pray and repent and call out to God. And God extends his life, and he sends Isaiah back to him and tells him he's going to extend his life for 15 years. And, and this is how Hezekiah wrote this down in his journal. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness. I'm in verse 9. He says in verse 10, I said, in the middle of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I'm going to die because God told him he was going to die. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. He was only about 75 years old. He said, I said, I will not see the Lord. In other words, I'm no longer going to see him because in the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament saints believed and understood that when they died, they would be in, in a place resting and waiting for the day of resurrection. And so he says, I won't be able to see the Lord. I will look on no man. I will look on man and no more among the inhabitants of the world. I will look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. I won't be able to be around people. I will have no fellowship with people. Like a shepherd's tent, my dwelling is pulled up and removed from me. As a weaver, I rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. In other words, I'm going to die. And he's thinking about this, what it's like to lose his life. And then skip down to verse 17. This is after God gives him a message, I'm going to extend your life. And this is what he says. Lo, for my own welfare, I had great bitterness. Why did God allow me to go through this? For my own welfare. Here's a biblical truth. When you suffer as a believer, God says he wants you to understand this. He's going to do good through it. He's going to bring about good benefits through your suffering. And so Hezekiah understands this. He says, it was for my own welfare that I had this great bitterness. It is you, he's talking to God, it is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. For you cast all my sins behind your back. In other words, I'm not suffering for my sins because you cast all your sins behind my back. You know what that means? That means forgiveness. You forgave my sins. Why does he say fling them behind you? Quite literally, fling them behind your back. Well, the word he used there behind my, that's translated behind my back is, it means a crevice in your back. It's, it's between the shoulder blades. You know where that is? You haven't seen it lately, have you? Not unless you, not unless you have some mirrors set up so that you can look in one mirror and see it reflected from the back. But that's the place you can't see. Where did God put your sins when he forgave you? He says, God doesn't see them anymore. There's an old Baptist hymn. It's in a Baptist hymn in any way. And it's called, the name of the hymn is, What Sins Are You Talking About? I don't know if any of you have ever heard that. It's kind of a bluegrass song. And uh, this guy goes to heaven, and he wants to tell Jesus how sorry he is for his sins. And Jesus keeps saying, what sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. That's what the Bible teaches. When you come to faith in Christ, your sins have been cast behind his back, and he no longer sees them or takes them into account. He forgives. I still remember the Old Testament word for forgiveness only because I had a mnemonic device when I took Hebrew. And the word for forgiveness in the Old Testament, one of them is nasah, it's spelled just like, if you transliterate, it's just like NASA. You know what NASA is, right? And so it means to lift up. That's what the Hebrew word means, to lift up and put away. It means to dis disregard it. It's gone. 
That's what forgiveness is. In the New Testament, there's another word, and it means the same thing. He has sent it away. And so when a person truly comes to faith in Christ, he is aware, she is aware that her sins have been forgiven. And this is why he gives us such joy and love for Christ, is because her sins have been forgiven. Have you ever forgiven a debt, that somebody owed you a debt, and you decided you weren't going to try to even collect it anymore? You just forgave it? Isn't that a relief? It's a great relief when you do that. It's like I don't, have to, I don't ever have to hint at it anymore. I don't have to say anything about it anymore. I have forgiven it. God has forgiven the sins of his people. And the reason we have joy and love for Christ, love for Christ and joy in Christ, is because our sins have been forgiven. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the greatest help in evangelism is Christians living like Christians. Christians living in love for Jesus Christ because they've been forgiven. That's the greatest testimony. Peter says, be ready as a people. He says, you, plural, be ready to give an explanation of the hope that lies within you, you, the church. What is that hope? I've been forgiven. We've been forgiven. When we stand before God, we're not going to be apologizing. We're not going to be feeling bad because we're there. We've been forgiven. And so we sing this song that we have sung. Uh, There's... Isaiah 38, I could have showed you. But we just sang this song, uh, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me because you died. Singing this to Jesus, you died and rose again. Well, notice this. This is kind of what's called a chiasm. That is that the first word, forgiven, actually relates to the the word uh, condemned. The reason you were forgiven is because Jesus was condemned. He took your place and he was condemned. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, Paul says. And then the word accepted corresponds to the word forsaken. I've been accepted because he's been forsaken. In other words, he took my place and he received what I deserved. And he gave me what I didn't deserve as a gift. That's why you have to receive it as a gift. The only way to be saved is to receive it as a gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can only receive it as a gift. And this is why you have this correspondence between these these words. We're forgiven because he was condemned. We are accepted because he was forsaken. But we sing it. This is what Bob Dylan would do in his songs, too. (laughs) And, And the point is that we are a forgiven people. So here's our mission. This is our mission right here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. This is how we're to live so we can be an effective witness to the world. This is how Christians are to relate to each other. Notice this. Become kind to one another. Tenderhearted. In other words, being touched by one another's just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In other words, we are the fellowship of the forgiven. That's what we are. And we should act like it. I heard of a church fight not too long ago. A guy was talking to me, and he was talking about this church fight that was going on, this disagreement, and, and, and all the gossip, and all the gore, and all that stuff. And I thought, that's heartbreaking, isn't it? We're the fellowship of the forgiven. Are you ever going to be wronged in a church? Of course. 
Because whether you know it or not, all these people sitting here are sinners saved by grace. They have the capacity to offend you. In fact, Paul, John says, if we say that we don't have sin, if I say that I can't sin, you know, there's a group that teaches that, that you can come to the place, you can have an experience where you can never sin again. Don't get around those people. They're scary. They'll do you damage. <laughs> But this is what he says, that this, and, and Peter says, you need to be able to give an explanation of this. When people say to you, what is it about you people that's so different? We've been forgiven. And so we have no trouble forgiving each other. So what can I say about if you sin against me? What can I say? Christ died for you. God forgave you. Now, it's interesting, in the Bible, most of the time it talks about confession. Confess means to, I agree with you that what I did was wrong. And First John 1, 9 says we should confess our sins to the Lord. When we sin as believers, we confess to him, and he forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But most of the time the word confession is used, it's used of me confessing to you because I've sinned against you. Believers confessing to each other. When I sin against you, I need to come and confess to you and ask your forgiveness. And the reason you can forgive me is because Christ died for our sins and God forgave us for Christ's sake. So I just want to leave you with this. I want us to live a lifestyle of the evangel, of the gospel. And part of that is this very thing, that we love each other and we forgive each other. So that we have a context in which we could, with credibility, share the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the things you need to do to be fruitful in evangelism is to bring people who are listening to the gospel to meet Christians who are actually getting along with each other, who actually love each other. And that's what we have to be as the church of Jesus Christ. So I appeal to you, you are an ambassador of Christ that's true greatness because you're a believer and you have been loved so greatly and now you can love because you've been loved by God, by the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life for you. Romans chapter 8 says, if, if God gave his own son, will he not also with him freely give us all things? Yes, everything that I truly need, he'll give me. But like a wonderful parent, sometimes he withholds from us what we're asking for because he knows exactly what it will produce in us that will be destructive. And so he is able to say no. That's not, a, that's not diminishing God. That's saying his love for you is overwhelming. So recognize your own greatness because you are an ambassador of Christ and dwell in the love of God in Christ Jesus and allow him to use you to love others. Let's pray. Our Father, we are a needy people. We've been blessed with the gospel and the fruit of the gospel. We've been forgiven. We've been given life eternal. We've been made a part of the family of God. We call you Father, and we know that you hear us. So I pray... God, that you would stir our hearts about this calling that you've put upon our lives to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, to be spokesmen for him, 
God, I pray that you'd overcome our fear and our weakness, that we would realize that I don't have to be a, a great speaker. I don't have to be a great communicator. I just have to be forgiven and love the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'll be able to share Christ. I pray you'd fill our hearts with a love for him that overwhelms all other lesser loves, I pray. Help us to be effective as your people in this community, in this world that we are in. We pray as we leave this place today, as we sing this last song and we leave this place, help us to love one another and forgive each other and build one another up so that we'll have a reason to give an explanation for the hope that lies within us. We pray you do this for the glory of your Son. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.